I mean, it's a challenge, isn't it? How well you know yourself. Um, at the start of this year, um, I, I wrote down some things about myself that I thought I would just kind of, kind of share with my colleagues because, you know, we, we do all these kind of personality profiles, don't we? And, and who likes personality profiles? You know, Myers-Briggs or Enneagram? You know, they're, they're, they can be really helpful, but they're, they're, they're not an exact science, are they? And when you say things about yourself, it might be true, but there's probably another truth there too, isn't it? So, for instance, when I was doing my little kind of know-myself kind of things, I thought, well, I'm an extrovert. And then I thought, but actually, I'm also a contemplative. <laughs> and it's not, you know, the, the, I, I think I'm less extrovert than I used to be. I, living with 19 other people and, you know, your extroversion gets used up quite a lot. And then a lot of people think I'm hard-working. And I do a lot of hours, but I'm also really lazy. You know, I, I'm, I'm good at doing things that come easily to me. I'm really bad at kind of the detailed grafting work. You know, learning a foreign language. English came easily to me, so I'm quite, quite good at English. But French, I had to learn all that grammar and tenses. But that's how I'm, I'm kind of lazy and hardworking. Both things are true. Or um, I've got some others, you know. Um, intuitive and strategic, well... Patient and hasty, responsive and detached. I, I mean, I, th- I think I'm quite a responsive person, but I'm also quite detached at another level. And, and those things can be helpful, but it's complex, isn't it? And, and you can find one side. Tim Dobson said to me the other day, here's a thing about you, David, bothered and not bothered. Well, <laughs> which is it? <laughs> and it's, it's quite true. So knowing myself has been a journey. It's helped by being married, to be honest. Because you're, if you are in a close relationship, whether you're single, with friends, or whether you're married, or, or your family, they can hold up a mirror to yourself and say, ah, I think you're like that. You say, well, am I? And actually, the strategic review that we've been on is a know-yourself church kind of thing. So more of that and on. But I think, um, I think we're often a little bit defended against the truth about ourselves. We like to think of ourselves as a slightly more glamorous version of ourselves than the real thing. Are you, are you like that with me? You know, sort of, when I was younger, I thought, well, I really am a rock star. <laughs> I, I can play the guitar, you know. Or, you know, if you're a footballer, well, I, I probably could play for England one day, but um, if I worked at it. No, we, we have a more glamorous kind of view of ourselves. And, and in, in the New Testament, Paul, in, in Romans chapter 12, says, don't think of yourselves more highly than you should, but think of yourself with sober judgment. It's a call to self-knowledge. On the other hand, some of us can think of ourselves more lowly than we should have. You know, we can think, my issue isn't that I think too highly of myself, but actually I think I'm a bit of a worm. I think I'm a bit rubbish. I think the world would be better off without me. And there are some people who live with a, with a terribly crushed spirit, a really, uh, uh, a really unhelpful selfish, where they can't see the treasure in themselves that other people can see. And the reality is that we are all kind of people made in the image of God. And we're also a little bit broken. We're a bit like Tintern Abbey, you know? You can see it's an amazing building, but it's not got a roof at the moment. <laughs> uh, and um, here's a little quote from C.S. Lewis. And he was, this is from The Magician's Nephew, that Narnia story, where um, C.S. Lewis is, is putting in the words of Aslan, who represents Christ, speaking to the cabbie and his wife when they come to the new creation that's Narnia. And they've come from our world. And... Um, and C.S. Lewis, uh, well, not C.S. Lewis, it's Aslan, but he says to the, the cabbie, 
You come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, said Adlan, and that is both honour enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. So I, I, I like that quote, and I think, yeah, to be human is to carry trains of glory, but also to have the potential for tremendous brokenness. And most of the time, we're kind of jogging along, aren't we? Trying to do the best that we can and, and trying to, to be the best version of ourselves that we can be. But how, how do we know ourselves truly in the light of God's knowledge of us? And for me, one of the, the parts of Scripture that I think is a really helpful in terms of self-knowledge is Psalm 139. And um, it's the psalm that begins, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. And um, I don't think the psalmist, when the psalm begins, is very positive about that. In fact, he uses words like, you hem me in. Where can I flee from your presence? If, you know, the darkness is as likely, I can't even hide from you. It's as if the awareness that God knows me is a little bit intrusive. I'd quite like it if God took his eyes off me for a moment and I could just get on with life. And I don't know whether any of you ever feel like that, really. But there comes a point in the, in, in the psalm where the psalmist welcomes God's knowledge of him. And the end of the psalm is an invitation to God to search me and know me, as he says it. It's kind of like, I, 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 instead of hiding from you, I'm exposing myself to you. Instead of pretending that I'm the best version of me that I really am, I'm saying to you, God, show me my blind spots. It finishes by, by this. It says, um, search me, God. And know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I think that kind of self-knowledge is a key to effective ministry. Where we know ourselves in the light of God's knowledge of us. Where we can see our blind spots but we can also Trust in the gifts and competences that God has given us. And Jesus, when in Matthew 7, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says to his audience, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you can see to take the splinter out of someone else's eye. It's kind of deal with yourself first, look at yourself, get yourself knowledge right, and then you'll be equipped to really be able to help someone else a little bit to be a minister. So, as we go into Easter, on this Easter journey, there's a journey of self-knowledge that I want to invite you on. Now, we're in the season of Lent, and Lent is traditionally a time of repentance. It references um, the teaching of John the Baptist who came to prepare the way of the Lord and said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And repentance is a change of mind. It's a turning away from one, one direction to another direction. And it's an invitation, I think, in a season of repentance to, to say this prayer. 
Search me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in ways everlasting. Let me turn from those offensive ways and turn towards you. It's a season in Lent when we remember Jesus himself being tempted and tested in the wilderness in that 40-day period. And in um, his humanity, being faithful to God as God's son. So, a great time to explore self-knowledge as we go towards Easter. And I'm going to read you a little quote. It's going to come up on the screen. It's from a man called Richard Lovelace, writing this probably in the 1980s. And he said this. Um, it's often been said today that we must love ourselves before we can be set free to love others. This is certainly the release which we must seek to give to people. But no realistic human being finds it easy to love or forgive themselves. And hence, their self-acceptance must be grounded in their awareness that God accepts them in Christ. There is a sense that the strongest self-love that we can have, in the sense of agape, is merely the mirror image of the lively conviction we have that God loves us. That's a bit wordy, that, isn't it? But I hope you get it. But the, but the point is this, isn't it? And let me just rephrase it simply. If we don't love ourselves, we're not really healthy. We, we, we can't have a kind of the confidence that we're okay. But actually, if we really know ourselves, we know that we're not really okay. We've got all these flaws and failings. So how do we handle that tension? We handle that tension because we believe that God has accepted us and loved us and calls us his own and rescues us as his children. And that, the knowledge that God is for us, is of course the knowledge that Jesus Christ shared in his journey in his life, in his incarnate walk on planet Earth. So Matthew chapter 3, which is John the Baptist introducing Jesus on the sphere of human history, closes with Jesus being baptized and a voice from heaven saying, this is my son, I'm pleased with him. Before Jesus begins his ministry, in that place of obscurity that it's come from and that's now being presented to the world, there is the favor of God. There's the identity. This is my son. I love him. That my, and and this, is, this is a real sense that Jesus carried, didn't he? That God was his father. That God was for him. That his life was lived out of the relationship that he had with his father and the knowledge that his father had of him and the knowledge that he had of his father. And that's the kind of relationship that Jesus wants to give us. So that's how his ministry begins. This is my son, I love him. This is how his ministry ends, John chapter 13, on our Easter journey. And this is more day Thursday, really, but I'm going to read it to you. Now, there was some present. Oh, hello. What am I doing? I'm reading from Luke. I'm meant to be in John. John 13. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. That he'd come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the 
from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after he'd poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord said Simon Peter, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you're clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said not everyone was clean. And when he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And that I, your Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And I guess you're familiar with the story and familiar with the message. But it begins with Jesus knowing who he is. Knowing he's come from the Father. Knowing he's going to the Father. Knowing what lies ahead of him. Knowing the the cross that's before him. Knowing he's going to be betrayed. But the the self-knowledge actually means that Jesus is totally secure and it's enough for him to be the son of the father. That's enough. And it's the kind of self-knowledge that allows you to take both a high place or a low place. And in this passage, Jesus does both those things, doesn't he? he? He takes off his clothes. It's such a a vulnerable thing to do, isn't it? Such an exposing thing to do. To take off your clothes, to be almost naked, washing the disciples' feet. And I was thinking, as I just sat in the car park today, of of Adam and Eve and their story and how their nakedness was a source of shame to them. And so they tried to hide. They they, they tried to hide from God. (coughs) and, And I guess... Sometimes shame can do that to us, can't it? It can make us hide, make us hide from other people. It can make us hide our, our true identity. It can make us hide from God even. And, and yet, a freedom from shame sets us free to be naked. And there's no shame in Jesus. There's no none of the original chip on his shoulder. There is that sense, I know who I am. I'm a child of the Father. And he can take that lowest Role. So the role that Jesus was enacting then as he washed his disciples' feet was the, the, the role that the most basic household slave would take. It's a, feet are a bit peculiar, aren't they? They're, they're, in, in, in Middle Eastern culture, it's an unclean kind of thing. You know, if you take your sandals off, you're kind of really insulting someone. But here, the, the slave's job is to clean the feet. And, and Jesus says, I am taking that lowest place. Absolutely taking that lowest place. And I know who I am and I'm not ashamed. And I'm not degraded by taking that lowest place. I'm serving you. And I'm showing you what power looks like in the upside down kingdom of God. 
And Jesus is always in the kingdom of God turning power on his head. He's going to go to the cross where though he can say, you know, I could call 12 legions of angels, he chooses to confront the powers of this world by utter powerlessness, to disarm them by embracing the very um, pain and abusive power that is thrown at him. But here he's doing exactly the same thing. He's, he's turning power on its head. And he's saying, this is what lordship looks like. This is what leadership looks like. It looks like servanthood. It looks like me loving you, setting an example. And, and for people who are in my community who are following my way, this will change the world. This is a world-changing act, which I'm calling you to follow. But just in a few verses later, as you probably noted, he says, um, get my glasses out again. Oops. Hiding, there they are. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. For that is what I am. He takes the place of the slave, but acknowledges himself as teacher and Lord. Because his identity is exactly that. He knows who he is. He knows who he is. So, how do we know ourselves? Are we like Jesus that we know where we've come from and we know where we're going? It might be that where we've come from is a very broken place. But if we can know in the light of, of God's knowledge of us that that's where we've come from, but where we're going is to be with him forever. And right now we're on a journey with the Holy Spirit and his family. The shame of where we've come from doesn't stop us being a minister now. And if, you, if you've heard me preach, you've probably heard me preach very often from John chapter 20, which is, to my mind, again, another revolutionary part of the Bible. Because it's in that chapter that Jesus meets with his disciples on the first Easter Sunday. And the disciples had not known themselves before Easter. They thought that they were better than they really were. They thought that they could stick with Jesus through thick and thin. And in fact, they said that to him. You know, we'll never leave you. We'll, we'll die with you. Jesus knew them. He could say to Peter, he says, I'll never deny you. Before the cock crows, you'll have denied me three times. He knew it was in the heart of people. And he knew them. But they didn't know themselves. And it wasn't until their failure that they really knew themselves. And it's as broken, afraid people in John 20 that they stand before Jesus when he enters that room. They're hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. Their sense of personal authority, their sense of status as ministers has been completely demolished. And it's at that place when they can know their, their vulnerability and know their dependence on God that Jesus commissions them again. He's always recommissioning people who know themselves. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. He gives them tremendous authority. He gives them authority to minister. But their authority to minister is now no longer on their own goodness, their ability to keep their promises to God, but on their sentness and who they are under, whose authority they're sitting under. The authority of Jesus who sits under the authority of the Father. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. That's divine level authority. It's a kind of divine level of authority that when Jesus says it to a paralyzed man, 
the Pharisees and the teachers of the law say, who can forgive sins except God alone? Right, says Jesus, I'll show you where my authority comes from. He heals the paralyzed man. But here he's doing it again to those disciples. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So, self-knowledge. We're a church. We're a church family. Do we know ourselves? Strategic review, the congregation review, looking at the community church as you've been assessed. Do you, do you know yourselves? What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? And what can God do with people like us? In this season, we want to explore who we are in the light of God's knowledge of us. And an external review will not be perfect, of course. But it may help us to see ourselves a bit more clearly. And in our individual lives, who are you? Who are you? What's God saying to you? Are you hiding from God because of shame? Are you overconfident because of hubris? Or do you know yourself in the light of an invitation to God by his Holy Spirit to search you, to know your heart, to know your anxious thoughts, to see if there's any offensive way in you? And I want to, uh, in a moment, to just invite you to pray with me. Within the room today, there will be a fair bit of anxiety that will stop you serving God. Because you'll be anxious about your contribution. You'll be self-conscious in, in your ministry. Or you'll be so aware of the pressures and difficulties of life that you just feel a bit crushed. In the room today, there'll be those of us who are carrying blind spots. Who are not aware of the things that might be a bit transparent, not just to God, but even to other people around us. And in the room today, there'll be people who God loves and says, I love you more than you know, and I really want to use you. And I want you to have the confidence that I'm for you, as I was for my son Jesus Christ. And your identity actually isn't primarily your name, but it's your, your identity is primarily a child of God. And if I'm for you, who can be against you? Walk in faith. If I'm for you, who can be against you? And, and God wants to give us a courage to do life, a boldness to do life. And so, I just want to invite you, if you identify with any of those conditions that I've described I'd like to pray with you and I'd like you to, to help to help me um, by just identifying yeah I, I think I can identify with, with those and it's a bit cheeky of me really but maybe you, in a moment of, of quiet you'd stand and say I'd, I'd, I'd like some prayer today because I'd like to pray pray with you so that's my invitation. If you feel like you want to say yes to God's searching eyes and loving heart to you, and if you identify with one of those needs for God to touch you, please just stand with me now. Thank you. 
Holy Spirit, we invite you to search us and know us. We welcome your presence and your power. We welcome your call on our lives. We welcome the freedom that comes from you working in us. We acknowledge our inability to save ourselves or to save anyone else unless you're at work. And we say yes to the work of your spirit in our lives. And my strong sense as I look across the room and look at you standing is first of all the mercy of God. That God looks at you and me with eyes of mercy. And, and mercy um, that triumphs over judgment. Mercy that says it's not about achieving, it's about receiving. And also I, I, I sense the pleasure of God who always loves it when his children come home to him. We may come like a prodigal, feeling shame. Or we may come timidly. Or we may come just as we are, but with a sense that the Father's there for us. And his pleasure is in us. Father God, may the, the joy of the Lord be our strength. May we know that you are for us and that you're pleased with us and that your spirit is working in us. I want to pray, Lord God, for grace on everybody in this room, particularly those who are standing today acknowledging their desire for more of you. I see these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.